What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul podcast. It's your host, Chris, and today I get to talk with David Robson. So check it out. David wrote a book called The Intelligence Trap, and it is definitely one of my favorites. So I know, I know you're going to be interested in this subject because there isn't a single one of us, not one of us on planet Earth, who hasn't sat back and said, how could someone so smart do something so stupid, right? Or how can someone so intelligent fall for something so dumb? And we saw this a ton, especially during COVID. And these are some of the things that David and I discuss in this episode. Like, think about how many doctors spread COVID conspiracies. Think about people with PhDs and just years of education who deny climate change or they're anti-vax, just so many things. But even on a daily basis, we have a tendency to inflate our own intelligence and think we know more than we do and all that. And we all screw up, right? So when I talk with David, not only do we try to get to the bottom of why intelligent people fall for dumb things or they get you know manipulated or conned or whatever not only do we talk about that but we talk about tools for our everyday life because so many of us are making very 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 important decisions or we're collaborating with someone else or getting into business with someone else and there's a lot on the line whether it's time or money or resources or whatever it is so how do we know if we're going to be partnering with an intelligent person hell even if you're getting in a relationship how do you know if the person you're getting in a relationship with is intelligence and something else we talk about is what is intelligence like i enjoyed this conversation so much and i honestly could have talked to david for hours so i really hope you enjoy it but yeah make sure you check out the description down below uh david has an exciting announcement about an upcoming book so make sure you're following him over on twitter and i will link the intelligence trap down below again it's one of my favorites and i really hope you enjoy this conversation but before we get started make sure you're following me as well over on instagram and twitter at the rewired soul i'm always tweeting about books that i'm reading upcoming episodes uh new authors who i'm talking to and all sorts of stuff so you'll get to know a ahead of time so you can grab a copy of the book and read it before the episode comes out you know what i mean so make sure you're following me on instagram and twitter at the rewired soul but without further ado here's my conversation with david robson about his book the intelligence trap Hello, David. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm really good, thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me on the podcast. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much uh, for coming on. So, so yeah, I uh, I actually started to read the book a long, long time ago, like when it first came out, and then I I like forgot about it, and then I got really interested in this subject of why smart people seem to make really dumb decisions or believe in weird things. And I started binging the book and it's absolutely one of my favorites. So what what kind of inspired you to write The Knowledge Illusion? Uh, yeah, uh, it's called the, the Intelligence Trap, but yeah. Oh God, the- God, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so my mistake, everybody. I was thinking of a different book. Go ahead, David, I'm sorry. <laughs> But um, so this was, uh, you know, I'm a science journalist and I um, was working at New Scientist um, 
And it was about this time that there was this case of this physicist called Paul Frampton, who um, he uh, was kind of divorced and, you know, he's in his 60s and kind of was quite lonely and wanted to kind of find love. So he started online dating and got talking with someone who claimed to be the glamour model, uh, mm. Denise Milani. Um, and so, you know, they, they were talking, he kind of started to fall in love with her. Um, and they decided to kind of meet in La Paz, uh, Bolivia, um, or while she was on this um, alleged photo shoot. Um, anyway, he arrived there, found that she had left the hotel. Uh, she'd left a note asking him if he could just pick up her, um, her suitcase, which had accidentally left, and take it on to their next meeting. Um, mm. So he did so. He was going to go back to the US first. Um, but um, he was called to the border and it turned uh, at the border and it turned out that he was carrying two kilograms of cocaine. Um, so, you know, he'd clearly been duped in this kind of uh, honeypot kind of trap, um, you know, really horrible situation for him. But what the what was strange was just that he had kind of ignored a lot of evidence that <laughs> um, it was actually a scam, that this wasn't real. And, you know, a lot of his friends had kind of warned him, like, there's something fishy going on here, just be careful. But he wasn't. He he seemed to have kind of, he just wasn't appraising the situation in a rational way. And, you know, mm -hmm. that got a lot of um, press coverage at the time. And that just uh, got me um, uh, to start thinking about what, what do we mean by intelligence? And, you know, he, there's no questioning Paul Frampton's kind of intelligence. And, and mm -hmm. you know, he was... Uh, many people thought he might win a Nobel Prize for his uh, work on particle physics. You know, his his ideas have inspired experiments at the Large Hadron Collider. So yeah, there was yeah. just this kind of mismatch um, between what we understand to be intelligence and the way he was behaving. And then I came across loads more examples, some of which I found actually a lot more worrying and more troublesome, you know, Nobel Prize winners who had been AIDS denialists or climate change denialists. And it just made mm -hmm. me think that actually we need to kind of reappraise our understanding of intelligence. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and God, I'm so sorry for screwing up. I remember the knowledge illusion made me want to read The Intelligence Trap. And by the uh, way, don't tell the other authors, but I liked your book a lot better. But anyways, <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah, that's such that's such a, a, a great example. And like, God, uh, like the first the first thing I want to talk about too is like uh, you 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 started um, questioning like what what we what we consider intelligence, right? And this is this is something that I think about all the time. Like I'm really fascinated with this whole idea of intelligence, right? Like for example, this morning when I was, we were talking about how, you know, we got our workout in this morning and stuff. I was on my morning walk and I was thinking about how, you know, there's some, there's some books that I read, for example, where 90, not 90%, but a, a large percent of the book is just quoting other people, right? Or if you listen to interviews with people and they're quoting people and just an example is we, we sometimes look at memorization as, mm. as uh, equating to intelligence, which I find very, very strange, right? But in your example, you know, this, this very intelligent guy, he got kind of duped in the, in the realm of like, uh, you know, just uh, human interaction and romance and, you know, mm. and all that. So, so I guess my question is to you, what, what, how do you see intelligence? What do you define intelligence as? And, you know, do you, is it different yeah. than what we kind of like the conventional wisdom of what intelligence is? Mm, yeah, you know, I actually, <laughs> so, you know, intelligence has got like a really strong um, evidence base 
within psychology, you know, the kind of research started around 100 years ago, maybe a little bit more. Um, and it's measured with these <coughs> like IQ tests, which get quite a bad rap, but actually they are super good at, at doing what they were meant to do, which was predicting academic performance. Um, mm -hmm. So you have those kind of abstract problems, uh, vocabulary tests, you know, all of these different components. And then what you find is that actually people's um, uh, performance on one component predicts their performance on another. And so it seems that there's this kind of general kind of brain power underlying the kind of score on the overall IQ test that then is useful in academic situations. And we've been able to link that to lots of different um, kind of features of the brains, like whether kind of how well connected they are, like the white matter tracts, whether they're more or less efficient seems to predict IQ. Mm -hmm. So there is something there in the kind of very traditional understanding of intelligence. And mm. I just kind of see more that um, I think where we might have gone wrong in the past was claiming that kind of intelligence was kind of the be all and end all of someone's intellectual potential. Mm -hmm. um, and the way I would see it is that intelligence is almost like the kind of engine of a car. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's great to have like a powerful engine in a car, but you also need to have like good steering, suspension, mm -hmm. uh, GPS to make sure that you actually get to your destination. Otherwise actually like without any of that and without kind of driving skill, then you could find that actually your um, uh, your kind of fast engine is just going to drive you off a cliff or cause <laughs> you to have an accident. And that's how I see intelligence as being. It's like you can use your intelligence well or badly. Um, yeah, and yeah. so we need these other kinds of checks and balances in our thinking that make sure that we actually apply that raw brain power in the best possible way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like it's 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 interesting to me too because you know when we when we look at you know specialists or scientists and things like that, uh, we kind of fall into uh, the halo effect, right? Where we're like, oh, well, they're smart in this area, so therefore they must you know be a good person, or they must be happy, or they must be this, and they must be that. And I find that really interesting too because you know, especially with the rise of uh, social media and influencers and um, and all of that, like uh, intelligent people or beautiful people or rich people, they get a lot of attention. And I'm always curious, like, you know, what what is it that we're admiring about them? Why do we neglect to see the nuances and, you know, and things like that? Um, because, you know, as you mentioned, uh, you know, uh, just even with relationships, intelligent people might not, you know, be the, you know, the quote unquote smartest. So uh, why, why do you think it is that we, we put so much weight on intelligence in different ways or even other aspects like with celebrities and look up to them so much and neglect, you know, the bigger picture? Mm, I mean, I, I definitely think that like, maybe we appraise the things or we value the things that are quite easy to appraise. Mm. Um, so, you know, like if someone's famous, it's kind of, they've already got a lot of approval. Um, so, mm. you know, you kind of feel justified in kind of um, uh, copying their opinions or their fashions or whatever, because you've already seen it's kind of reached this kind of consensus. Um, with intelligence, you know, it was easy to measure. Um, and I think what has been surprising about intelligence was that it was such a good predictor, considering how easy it is to measure. You know, you have like... Oh, a test of that maybe lasts for an hour and that can uh, tell you about important outcomes in academic learning. Mm -hmm. So I, th I think that's one of the reasons why 
intelligence has been so well valued for so long. Um, mm -hmm. But I also think it is part of our culture that um, we kind of uh, appreciate speed. <laughs> Possibly <laughs> we appreciate speed over quality. Um, yeah. And, you know, smart people are going to be quicker at kind of responding to certain questions, certain tasks, you mm -hmm. know, in a classroom, they're gonna be the first person to put their hand up, you know, in a meeting, they're gonna be maybe the first person to kind of um, contribute their idea. And we mistake that speed for kind of sophistication. Um, mm -hmm. And what I'm really trying to argue in the intelligence trap is that actually uh, people who are more deliberative, um, more analytical, maybe the people are holding, who are holding back to reflect that maybe they will actually make the best, uh, most rational, wisest contribution uh, in a particular task or, or um, you know, when they're kind of considering their own life decisions. Yeah, yeah, ab absolutely. And so, so that it's interesting too, because something else I've, I've been thinking about uh, just like when I was uh, writing down notes for the book for this conversation is, is the subjectivity of it all too. So when we think intelligence, you know, we think of like scientists, doctors, surgeons, you know, people who went through mm -hmm. a lot of school, a lot of education, and everything like that. But I could take, you know, a brain surgeon or a Nobel prize winner in science and ask them to change the oil of their car or to fix their plumbing and they wouldn't know where to start right but you mm -hmm. take you yeah. take somebody who works on cars all day you take someone who works on plumbing all day and you know i ask them a question and they can get back to me fast right so when we're talking about that speed there's kind of this like subjectivity around it so Something that I, you know, I think about a lot, um, you know, because I try to, I try to look to others who are doing well and, you know, they're genuinely happy and things like that. And, you know, part of it is intelligence. Part of it's problem solving, you know, are they causing too many problems in their own life? So my question for you after, you know, researching this book and, uh, you know, as you mentioned, arguing, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, we're looking at this in the wrong way. How do you, how do you kind of like look and like assess assess people when you're interacting with them and say like, oh, this, this person makes good decisions or they're smart. Right. How do you, how do you do that? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I guess, <laughs> uh, I guess I try in a way, like I try to suspend judgment a bit um, because I also think that <laughs> kind of mm. people's decision-making is really context specific, like mm. you mentioned. So, you know, I think like, uh, you know, you want to look at patterns of behavior, maybe, rather than kind of judging someone harshly for mm. making a really superficial comment on Twitter, like, <laughs> you know, one time or like in a conversation when, you know, maybe they're not focusing. But I do think that the things that I really um, try to look for, and, you know, I think this, especially with the people I'm working with, actually, you know, like mm. the people who I really think I'm going to, if I'm going to make an investment to kind of commit to a project where you have to collaborate with different people, then I really want to make sure that the people I'm working with are reflective and analytical. Um, and, you know, what I mean by that is that they do, they can kind of step back, override their kind of gut instincts and, um, and you know, maybe change their mind. And that's something that, uh, 
you know, some intelligent people are good at, but not all intelligent people are good at this kind of decoupling process. Um, So you can measure that in, um, you know, with in psychology with this uh, measure called the cognitive reflection test. But I think actually in real life, you quite quickly can just get a good idea of whether someone (laughs) kind of comes to an an intuitive decision and sticks to it, or whether they're kind of open to new information and update their beliefs and opinions and uh, behaviors based on uh, new information. And that's what I really value in uh, in kind of uh, my colleagues when I'm working with them. Yeah. And I, I think that's a, that's a great topic because, uh, you know, as you know, my, uh, at the time of recording this, the podcast is a couple months old and, you know, prior to this, I did a lot of mental health content and everything like mm-hmm. that. Just you know, because we all want to just live better lives. And, and one of the things that a lot of us have to deal with, and one of the reasons I love your book is like, sometimes we commit to these, you know, big projects, or we like go into business with a friend or a family member. And, and sometimes, you know, we're watching, we're watching TV, or even a movie, or uh, it might be a, a reality show or whatever. And we're like, that person, like, why are you getting into business with this person? They're not reliable. They, you know, they don't do this. And, and yeah, like, so, so I, I love that, that aspect of it. And, you know, so I guess like, what, what would you say, like, you, you look for in the other person or, or how much time do you take? Like, let's say, here, let me lay out a scenario for you, David. Somebody comes up, they have great credentials. They've been, you know, doing something successful for a long time, whether it's a business or somebody who wants to co-author a book with you and they have a good track record. Like, do you, would you base it just on like their, their track record or would you want to get to know a little bit more about their decision-making process and updating their beliefs and all that? Yeah, no, I totally would prefer to kind of, um, to get an idea of that kind of thinking process, you know, how mm-hmm. good they are at updating their beliefs, how good they are at kind of hearing disagreement and co- coming to a compromise. Um, intellectual humility is another element of uh, what I call, ev- well, uh, what these kind of psychologists as well call evidence-based wisdom. So that's where they've tried to design like these uh, tests that um, measure wisdom rather than intelligence. And one of the things they look for is whether someone shows intellectual humility, whether they can kind of admit when they don't know something or whether they just kind of try to blag and bluff and kind of get through. Um, and, you know, uh, that kind of uh, those tests of wisdom and intellectual humility in particular are really good predictors actually of um, of all kinds of outcomes. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, that's what I would really look for you know, I, I just at the moment, and especially having written the intelligence trap, um, I just can't stand intellectual arrogance. And yeah, <laughs> right. I, I just really want to, um, to deal with people who are willing to kind of change their mind when necessary. Um, and funnily enough, actually, with even with the intelligence trap, you know, when I was kind of, um, my agent was shopping the book around um, mm-hmm. to different editors, you know, as happens when um, you're kind of, um, you're kind of trying to sell the rights to a book. And, um, you know, uh, the a couple of the editors actually had kind of tried to take some of the tests within uh, the book. One of them was the <laughs> cognitive reflection test that looks at this kind of decoupling process. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the fact that they kind of told me about their results and, you know, were honest about their results, but also kind of showed that they'd been through that process. I guess that did give me more confidence in working with them um, mm. just because I knew that they were actually, they had that self-awareness about their thinking process that was going to make the whole process of 
of writing and ed- and the book being edited so much more kind of rewarding and constructive. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. So let me let me ask you this. Um, so we're t- like on the topic of like intellectual humility and stuff. And that's interesting. That's an interesting story about like shopping the book around and things like that, um, because something I've been interested in and I, I have another guest uh, who recently wrote a book on like personality. And, you know, I, I, I've oh, yeah. seen how they like they put personality tests in like job applications and they're trying to gauge your personality. Like, like, do you think that, you know, a better gauge for, you know, hiring somebody would be one of these like cognitive, like reflection tests? Like, Mm. do you think that would be better to see if like, you know, is this person's going to be intellectually humble? Can they update their beliefs and and all that? Like, what are your thoughts on implementing that into like hiring people? Yeah, I certainly think like um, we can start to use uh, these tests. So, um, in my book, I, I talk about the work on uh, by Keith Stanovich, um, mm. who's at the University of Toronto, and he um, he's designed this kind of rationality quotient. Um, and I believe that does include the cognitive reflection test, but it also looks at kind of people's susceptibility to uh, cognitive biases, common cognitive errors in kind of all different areas. And you know, he is getting some interest from. Uh, various mm. different organizations who who are wondering whether they could recruit based partly on someone's rationality as opposed to just uh, their kind of academic credentials that you know their SAT results or, or yeah. the equivalent so um, you know I think that's a really positive mood um, I also do think that maybe even just within interviews within those kinds of conversations um, I think we could change we could be more aware of the things that are actually going to kind of uh, predict good decision making. And I think at the moment we might reward someone for being ever so confident um, Mm -hmm. and presenting their confidence. And like I said, kind of being a quick thinker, someone who's very articulate, you know, all of that can be good. But I think actually it's also to look out for kind of when does the candidate um, admit that they don't know something? Mm. Uh, When do they show kind of evidence that they've actually tried to, to look for uh, kind of evidence that might contradict their opinion to kind of come to a a better decision, a kind of more balanced decision. I think Mm -hmm. all of those things could come out in the interview as well as in the kind of um, uh, personnel test that you might give someone before the interview. So yeah, I think it should be incorporated maybe at uh, at all levels of candidate selection. Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting too. You know, a, a minute ago we were talking about you know like getting into projects with people, and now we're talking about hiring people. But you know, when I when I think think about it, and I reflect on it. Like something I I often ask myself, you know, whether it's like listening to you know quote unquote experts, uh, and that's something I want to talk to you about definitely. But uh, I I look back at their history, and I'm like, when is the last time this person said, I don't know, or when's the last time I remember this person just saying I was wrong, right? Because I think it's really interesting when you when you look and and, and it's something I, I check in with myself on, like like when you look and it's like, I don't think I've, I ever remember them saying or admitting to a mistake. And that for me is like this, this big, this big red flag. And, you know, uh, I, I'm curious because sometimes it feels like, I don't know, uh, in, in the current like climate with, you know, a lot of dogpiling on the internet and everything like that. Do you think that the current culture makes it less forgiving to even let people say I was wrong or I don't know? You know what I mean? Like, is it more advantageous for people to just dig in their heels and, and not have that intellectual humility? What are your thoughts mm-hmm. on that? 
Yeah, that's a good uh, good question whether that's changed. I mean, I do I kind of think like this has been a problem for a long time. Mm. And especially saying something like politics, that people can't just say I was wrong. And you know, especially what I find frustrating is that actually often people might have been wrong, but they might have <coughs> their like the reasons that they were wrong might not be like totally damning, you know, like Mm-hmm. Maybe they didn't have enough information to hand, or maybe they, you know, have learned from that mistake and could actually kind of carry that learning through to make sure they don't make the mistake in the future. Mm-hmm. But I do feel like people were punished, um, you know, oh, there's a perception that people will be punished for admitting an error, so they just don't. And then they don't learn from the error and they end up making it again and again. And, you mm-hmm. know, I think we've kind of seen that in the UK uh, with Boris Johnson, um, uh, you know, many epidemiologists think that he's just been consistently too slow to Mm. start the (laughs) lockdowns uh, in the country um, in response to the pandemic. Um, Because the, you know, the maths is quite simple. If you start a lockdown early, (laughs) you don't build up so many cases so you can Mm -hmm. exit the lockdown more quickly as well. Um, He didn't do that in March. And, you know, I do think maybe the uncertainty in March 2020 was such that maybe, you know, he could be forgiven for that. But then he also made the same mistake um, in the autumn and then around Christmas, you know, um, and you start to think, well, like, what is it that he's not, why is he not updating his beliefs? Um, Because it's not, you know, in that case, I mean, you could, some people would say, well, it was because he wanted to protect the economy. But the mm-hmm. fact was, like, if if overall you spend less time in a lockdown, that is better for the economy than um, than delaying it by a week and then having to spend like a month extra in mm-hmm. lockdown um, at the end. So, yeah, I, and, you know, he just, I don't feel like there was that acknowledgement that I've acted, um, I've made a mistake once, but we won't do that again. It's just it. Yeah. Um, there's not really that discussion going on. Um, and so, yeah, I do, I do think we've, you know, had a problem for that. And I, I think it's, you know, a problem with the politicians, but I do also think it's a problem with the media and with the population is that if someone's made a mistake, we kind of see that as like reflecting something inherent within their personality, that they're incompetent, that they're not capable. And actually someone could be much more competent and capable if they did admit the mistake, but then took the learning from that and made sure they didn't do the same again. Yeah. Yeah. Something, uh, and that, that, that brings up a, a whole nother thing, like, uh, you know, staying on the topic of COVID I've been, you know, talking with, uh, you know, some different authors who, uh, like yeah, a couple or last week, I did a whole week of like scientific thinking and, oh. and I, I'm, I'm wondering if you think there's an issue with scientific literacy in combination with, you know, some of the things that the media does and everything. So I, I don't know how much you keep up, it, up, up with it in the United States, but, here, uh, you know, we have Dr. Anthony Fauci and, you know, early in the pandemic, they were like, ah, you know, we don't really need masks, right? Mm, and yeah. then that, you know, that changes, that updates. But that's one of the reasons I love science, right? Like mm, uh, they, yeah. they, they do more research, they get more data, they update mm. their beliefs, but that, that kind of backfires because the anti-mask people and the people downplaying COVID are mm. like, see, see, these people don't even know what they're talking about, right? Yeah. And and right. so that seems like an issue as well. Mm. Yeah, no, you're right. Um, <clears throat> I have mixed feelings about the situation with um, mask wearing because you know it wasn't just um, Fauci; it was also the WHO had been mm-hmm. like. Uh, I 
I feel like they had expressed that message at the start of the pandemic that masks weren't effective, like uh, with too much confidence. I think they would have been better to have expressed it with, to have expressed the uncertainty around the question. Like Mm -hmm. they could have said, you know, there's no evidence yet, but we'll be monitoring the situation. And, you know, that might have prevented these problems later. Um, I don't know the, the full kind of thinking behind their decisions. And I do wonder if there was also the question that if people... Um, if they had said that masks were effective to start with without the evidence, um, you know, we could have been in the same situation anyway. Um, Mm -hmm. And also, like, in the UK especially, like, uh, people were buying up all of the medical personal protective equipment um, that needed to go to doctors, Um, you know, uh, just bulk buying it for the the general public, not the kind of healthcare workers. And I think there was a sense that they were trying to avoid that kind of situation, which would have been a catastrophe too. Um, So, you know, I don't want to judge them too harshly for the way Mm -hmm. they presented that message. But yeah, I do think there's, there was maybe a problem with the the confidence with which they kind of um, uh, declared the the kind of um, the lack of uh, effectiveness of masks. And then can, you know, this reversal is quite confusing for a lot of people. Um, And then I do think, like you said, there's a problem with scientific literacy within the population um, that people don't understand that actually scientists are updating (laughs) their beliefs and their their understanding all the time with new evidence. And that sometimes we just have to accept that what was considered wrong might be considered right now based Mm -hmm. on new information. And that that doesn't that shouldn't kind of um, be seen as kind of a warning or an, uh, kind of, uh, it doesn't mean that we can't trust scientists. It just means that we, uh, we have to be a bit more flexible with our own understanding too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and it, it really feels too, just like with the whole political aspect of, you know, the COVID conversation and, you know, when, you know, you, you discuss some of this stuff in your book too, just like our own biases and, you know, confirmation bias, right? Like our side is saying, you know, we, we don't need masks and then we can, we'll find the thing that points to that evidence, you know, but you know, like uh, one one thing that I love about your book, and like I think I think I actually went back and and read it like during COVID was, you know, when I noticed that you know as we're getting new information, as we're getting new data, there are people with medical degrees and licenses who have been through years of you know university and all that, and they're spreading misinformation, wrong information about COVID. Um, we also had, uh, you know, I remember here, you know, in the States, uh, the, these two doctors went viral and uh, for saying that, you know, like their, their own theories about COVID and they were like chiropractors, right? Uh, like they, had, they weren't right. even in the, in the field. So, <laughs> yeah. so where do you, where do you think, uh, or, or I know you discussed this in the book a bit, but like, where do you think that this comes from? Like this, this kind of uh, this ego of just, oh, I, I have this much knowledge. I'm a professional. So I know all areas of this and my opinion oh. should matter. Like how many, how, why did so many professionals go astray like these intelligent people like just disregard the new evidence yeah I mean that's um I think that's (laughs) that is the big question I mean I would say probably you know um I think one of the problems with uh these individuals is that they (laughs) they're actually few in number compared to you know if you look Mm. at the percentage in the kind of whole medical profession you know it's probably one percent or less um but they're very vocal on social media so that does create a false consensus to um Mm. it creates the sense that it's these views are much more common than they really are and then that 
seems like more believable than to kind of uh, the general public if you you keep on hearing these voices kind of uh, spreading this misinformation again and again and again it starts to feel more believable even mm-hmm. if most doctors don't hold those beliefs but yeah it's an interesting question why even a small uh, small proportion of doctors would hold these fringe uh, unscientific views um, mm-hmm. there's this psychological uh, phenomenon called the earned dogmatism effect and mm. that is essentially when you, uh, you know, you have some kind of credentials for your expertise, and you know, (laughs) it might be your degree in chiropractic or whatever, um, you kind of, you just start to think that like, you've kind of, you've, you've earned the right to be dogmatic. And so you become less open minded, more closed minded, less likely to update your beliefs of new information. And so I think in some of these cases, what will have happened is that they had a kind of strong, intuitive feeling that maybe, uh, you know, the pandemic was being exaggerated early on and they felt like they had the kind of credentials that their, their judgment was going to be correct compared to other people. Um, and then they just stopped updating their beliefs, even when you could see the hospitals filling up in the UK or, you know, in the US when they could see the data coming in, they just, they were kind of turning a blind eye to all of that um, information uh, because of the and dogmatism effect and and you know mm-hmm. there's even another phenomenon called motivated reasoning yeah. where you know if you have like some scientific literacy um and some scientific knowledge that that can actually kind of help you to uh to rationalize your beliefs even if they're erroneous uh, mm-hmm. because what you do is you kind of start poking holes in the research uh, in <laughs> anything that disagrees with your point of view uh, but you don't apply the same critical thinking to the things that agree with your point of view. Mm-hmm. So that can actually just exaggerate your your beliefs, even if they're wrong. So I think we saw an element of that uh, in some of these people too. And then I just think there's a question of, um, you know, some people have just built their kind of identities around being contrarians. And I think mm. you saw that with someone like yeah. uh, the feminist writer Naomi Wolf, um, who just has had came out with the, she's banned from Twitter now because she's spreading so much information. Oh, really? And she was just coming up with the craziest uh, conspiracy theories about, um, first of all, COVID and lockdown, then about the vaccines. You know, she was claiming that um, that people in the same room as someone who's been vaccinated could start to suffer from these awful side effects like blood clots, <laughs> uh, while also claiming that the virus itself wasn't contagious and wasn't dangerous. So clearly, like um, some something very like <laughs> very wrong going on with her decision making. But I feel like it was partly she built her whole identity around this, and then it's really difficult to kind of escape from that and mm-hmm. to, to admit that you made a mistake. Um, so yeah, you know, all kinds of reasons. But I do think. Um, these people do kind of demonstrate various forms of the intelligence trap. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, it's something that I read about often too, uh, which you were talking about where like intelligent people, they're able to poke holes, you know, when you combine that with motivational reasoning and things like that. Like, for example, when it comes to like the climate change discussion or even vaccinations or mm. or whatever, like, you know, I think, you know, I think our, our immediate instinct is to be like, oh, these these people are dumb. Like they're stupid, mm. right? But it's yeah. like, no, like those those are the people who are most likely 
to <laughs> to think that they're right because they'll find these like little tiny flaws and they'll bring up like these little little pieces of like the research or whatever to to question you know and mm. and I don't uh, I don't know how how much of the general public understands like there was a whole book uh you know merchants of doubt when you know they 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 try to do that just like give doubt to certain things like when it comes mm. to you know uh the effects of smoking on health and you know uh just you know the foods we eat and you know because money's mm. influencing it um yeah. but but that's that's like kind of i want to segue into like the studies that philip tetlock did i've been meaning to talk to someone about this and i think you're perfect for it all right so in the book you, you talk about uh tetlock studies so you're probably yeah. much better explaining it than i am um so can can you kind of like break that down for like the the average person yeah. like what tetlock found in in his years of research uh yeah sure so you know like uh for decades, he had been looking at the performance of political, geopolitical forecasters. So, you know, the, the kind of people who might be rolled out um, mm -hmm. in the media, but who are also advising the government, who are trying to predict the course of political events. And he famously uh, found that they were um, not not better than uh, ran, than kind of a, a kind of mm -hmm. random decision generator. He said, I think he said something like they... Uh, chimps throwing darts at a dartboard would have been <laughs> more effective than some of these um, forecasters. I mean, that's the crazy thing. He actually found that they separated into two groups and, you know, some were better than average, but a mm -hmm. really large uh, proportion were also worse than average, like consistently wrong. And, you know, in the UK, I can definitely think of some political columnists who are <laughs> like that. It's like, you know, you just think, how can you keep on making these predictions when you've <laughs> been proven yeah. to be wrong time and time again? Um, so he then set up this kind of four-year tournament where anyone, like literally anyone, you didn't have to have any background in, in politics or political science at all, could kind of um, take part in this online competition where you would uh, make predictions about the outcomes of elections or sports events, you know, all kinds of different situations. And you would have to kind of break your confidence in uh, your prediction and you could update it kind of up until a certain point uh, before the the um, the actual outcome was going to be announced. And then they measured people's accuracy. So whether they were right or wrong, but also like whether their confidence was well mm -hmm. calibrated. Um, and so he found that actually there are these groups of people, um, super forecasters, I think it was the top 2% of the population that they studied, who really were consistently right. You know, it wasn't just a fluke, like they yeah. performed well year after year after year. They didn't regress to the mean, but they just, they seem to have different um, psychological qualities that help them to, uh, to make these predictions. And what I found interesting there was that they, some had a, background in political science but lots didn't you know some were mm -hmm. one I think there was one woman who was a pharmacist um and was just kind of interested in in the whole idea and curious so curiosity was uh one of the kind of best predictors um being open-minded so as we've been discussing throughout this conversation just being able to look for evidence that might contradict your point of view and then being able to update your beliefs based on that new information mm -hmm that was a really good predictor of their success. Um, yeah. So yeah, it kind of, he did find obviously a lot of these people were above average intelligence, but I think what was important there was that intelligence was by no means, um, intelligence or education were by no means the only predictors of whether someone would be a good 
forecaster and actually all of these other qualities um, mattered and those qualities actually really fit very well with the other kinds of checks and balances that I'd found from all kinds of different uh, pieces of psychological research that together seem to contribute to wise decision making in all areas of life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I remember uh, reading his book, it came out, I, I can't remember, maybe a few years ago, it's called Super Forecasting, and he kind of documents that, and it's really interesting, because yeah. a lot of them, like, set up, like, Google alerts, and just keep up with the news as things start shifting and changing, and uh, I, I think one of the reasons I, I really got into this subject is I had this weird, old, like, gripe with uh, uh meteorologists like the people they they put on tv to like predict uh -huh, the weather right. because here in las las vegas the weather is so erratic it could be clear in the summer mm -hmm. and 110 degrees and then it just starts like there's a flash flood right and yeah. and i remember just i'm like these guys have no idea what they're talking about like you know um but but yeah as i've learned more about this and experts and updating predictions so here's here's the primary question that i have to ask you and I'm wondering your thoughts. Um, so, so I think the best way to put it is uh, earlier this year, uh, I finally decided to start being smarter with my money and saving and investing. And I started looking at a lot of, you know, quote unquote, financial experts, right? Mm -hmm. And throughout this conversation, we've been talking about updating beliefs, but, and that, how that's a good thing. But at one point, at what point is it just somebody just updating their beliefs as things you know, like they have no confidence in what they're doing. You know what I mean? Like, for example, like one day they're like, oh yeah, buy this stock, buy this stock, buy this stock. And the next day it's down. They're like, oh, you should never buy that stock. You know what I mean? So there's like this weird balance I've been thinking about between updating your beliefs and just being a, a flip-flopper who never like really puts your, your stake in the ground. So how, how do we determine that when we're looking at experts, right? Like we want them to update their beliefs, mm -hmm. but are sometimes they, are they doing it too much? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, because you could have like opportunists who mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. just change their opinion, you know, on a whim uh, based on what's going to make them seem kind of popular or, and mm -hmm. you know, I think actually with these oh, with political pundits, um, that can be a big problem because they'll also be like, uh, they make kind of, some political pundits will make vague predictions that, <laughs> that yeah. whatever the outcome, it's almost like astrology, they can be like, oh yeah, 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 I kind of accounted for that possibility. <laughs> Um, I think that was why what was so great about Philip Tetlock's experiment was that he was asking people to um, declare their confidence. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like if if they said they were 80% confident, then you would expect um, that on those kinds of questions where they had declared 80% confidence that they would be right eight out of 10 times. Mm -hmm. um, I think the problem, you know, and th this was he deliberately put that into the tournament because you could have people who are always declaring low confidence and then like in a way they're like never wrong right <laughs> um, yeah yeah so you i think that's what you should ask of experts is for like the prediction and how likely they think it is for them to mm -hmm. be right um and then if if you find that their confidence is well calibrated with the actual results then you know that that expert is worth listening to yeah. Yeah. I think it was uh, the first time I really, uh, you know, heard of this concept was, uh, even though I know I, it's been around, uh, was in Annie Duke's book, uh, book mm -hmm. Thinking in Bets. 
Uh, she has another new book that just came out, How to Decide. But but yeah, like, uh, and I think maybe it's because I'm from Las Vegas and play some poker. But when some when you're asking about their confidence, like how much money, how much money would you put behind this prediction, mm. right? Or even to ask yourself that when you're about to make a decision, like how much would I be willing to bet? And even if it's just, you know, a, a, a little thought experiment you do with yourself, it, it can help you gauge your decisions because if there's no consequences to it, you know, you'll just run around doing whatever and be flipping floppy but uh i don't know if you heard of it but uh didn't they i i remember reading i can't remember if it was in philip tetlock's book or even one from roy baumeister but they made a website where people could like wager money on these predictions mm. of yeah. you know outcomes in different you know elections or you know news in different countries or you know whatever have you have you heard of that yeah 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 exactly i mean <clears throat> and i do think that is uh so um, I can't actually remember the results of that experiment, um, but I do think that in general, it's um, a really good idea to kind of make yourself accountable for the uh, for your predictions. And, mm -hmm. you know, so it, and that in itself can improve your uh, the quality of your decision making is if you kind of um, you you make sure that there are going to be some kind of consequences even if it is just losing a little bit of money or mm -hmm. maybe it's that you have to actually you know uh deal with um other people knowing that you'd made a mistake so that you'll kind yeah. of report to someone else about whether you were right or whether you were wrong um i think mm -hmm. that is one of the best proven ways of improving decision making yeah that that's what i find interesting too is because uh you know, uh, I'm sure the same thing happens uh, over in the UK on major networks. But uh, yeah, I, I see that there's like, there, there's little to no accountability. And it, it kind of frustrates me, because there's uh, millions of people potentially watching. And, and I'm like, nobody's keeping track of this person's track record of predictions. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, yeah. When I, you know, when I, like I mentioned, I, I recently got into investing and I'm like, I, you know, I, I have a decent memory or even if I question, I'll go back and like find like clips and stuff. I'm like, wait, this is completely opposite of what you just said two weeks ago. And the news, the news cycle is so fast. I think a lot of people, you know, yeah. forget. Um, but some people think I'm like cynical when I say this, but I think a great example on confidence and checking in with our own confidence is when you look at marriage, right? Like mm. when you look at marriage, nobody walks in, walks in on their wedding day and is like, you know, I, I think we're probably going to get divorced, right? Everybody <laughs> is a hundred percent confident in mm. their marriage, but you know, we, we have, we have divorces. I, I recently heard that the, the statistics aren't as high as people think, but mm -hmm. like, I think that's, that's something that we all always need to check because, you know, divorces or whether we're deciding to get into a relationship and, you know, when people make yeah. these kind of very impulsive decisions, like to move in together or get married. And that's yeah. what I love about books like yours is because we could take it and, and use it for such a wider application in our everyday life has, has researching this book and learning about this kind of helped you in the day-to-day -day in those aspects? Uh, yeah, it totally has. I mean, actually, just on the topic of marriage, um, mm -hmm. what I found fascinating, actually, is that Darwin himself <laughs> was kind of, you know, he wasn't an impulsive person. And so mm -hmm. he did apply some, uh, this technique that I describe in my book called moral algebra. And it's a bit like having mm -hmm. a kind of pros and cons list, but it's a bit more complicated because you, you kind of try to weigh the pros and the cons. So you attach like a numerical value to whether they, um, you know, a more important, less important is kind of 
calibrating your confidence in a way and and just kind of to, uh, trying to think about each one a bit more analytically but anyway yeah um darwin did this uh, before he got before he proposed to his uh, <laughs> uh girlfriend and you know they got married and it seems to have been a successful marriage so yeah i do think you can apply these things in your personal life and yeah i really do try to apply it in my life um yeah you know i think especially um with the you know it's very easy especially with like social media to to kind of have these gut reactions and then to be like super confident um and super vocal about your opinions and i actually just think that is just creating <laughs> more more confusion more upset so uh you know certainly uh you know and even in my journalism like i, I try very hard not to fall into that trap mm -hmm. um you know and it's hard as a journalist because actually i could be rewarded i feel for being more opinionated for being mm -hmm. um you know going out on a limb on a lot of these uh things but actually like i would rather just kind of take a step back and to try to form nuanced opinions that might not be so much more popular but mm -hmm. like that i can feel uh, intellectually honest and reflect um, my understanding of the information uh, at the current, uh, you know, at that moment in time. Mm. Um, so yeah, I guess, you know, in, in my formation of opinions, it's been really important. Uh, yeah, and in like a kind of important life decisions as well, like I try to use things like moral algebra, there's another technique that I mentioned in my book called self-distancing. Um, and that's really just to kind of tone down the kind of emotional pull of, of uh certain kind of decisions so mm -hmm. um you know like you said about marriage or you know like you might feel super optimistic about that but actually you could just uh, kind of take a step back and with self-distancing you try to imagine how like a friend might advise you mm -hmm. um and just by kind of taking their perspective rather than being like fully immersed in your own situation that that can actually just help to improve your decision making in different ways it's not about kind of eliminating emotion but it's just about being a little bit more analytical about mm -hmm. uh, the situation and being able to kind of look at you know to just ask yourself honestly like are my emotions pulling me in a way that um that might kind of backfire later on you know if we go mm -hmm. back to Paul Frampton <laughs> he uh, almost certainly could have benefited from that kind of process yeah, um, yeah. so yeah I think there's a huge number of ways now that people can escape from the intelligence trap um, and that's why I'm super excited about you know for the individual but also ways that um, these kinds of skills could be taught within schools you know critical mm. thinking skills you know how to avoid things like motivated reasoning you know all of that can be taught and and like the great thing is that actually it um, it doesn't distract from your classical education it actually enhances it so mm -hmm. people who are taught critical thinking actually then engage with the material in whatever course they're taking, you know, history, science, maths, whatever, they actually engage with the material more and come out of it with better thinking skills, but also better factual knowledge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, and I love that, that tip. And I hope everybody is writing that down, like checking in with your emotions in, in the situation as well. Like, hey, am I too close to this? Am, am I thinking in the wrong way? Do I have a relationship, you know, with this thing? Uh, do, I, uh, do I have any skin in the game? You know, these are things that I ask myself because I'm like, is this skewing my judgment? Is this skewing how confident 
I am in this, you know? Uh, yeah, and and the other thing I was wondering about, David, like as, as we were talking about that and, you know, uh, mentioning social media and there's so many things that happen, you know, whether it's on social media, when we're talking about politics or celebrities or whatever it is, I've been really diving into the subject of trust and mm -hmm. lying and deception. And I don't know how much research you've done into this, but something I'm learning more and more is that we are so terrible at detecting deception. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and you, you know, as a journalist, uh, you know, I'm sure this is something that, that you have to think about as well when you're, you know, uh, covering stories or interviewing people or whatever it is. So, so how do you, how do you deal with that? Because, you know, even when it comes to misinformation that's being spread online, like we suck mm -hmm. at detecting deception and we get really confident, like, oh, I know this person. I, I, I know them, right? We'd, like, we wouldn't think our best friend would do something or, you know, this politician we know or whatever that is. So how, how do you kind of manage that? Hmm. I mean, as a journalist, I'm quite lucky because, um, you know, I'm a science writer. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, some scientists, you know, have been, you know, known to commit fraud. And, you know, that's mm -hmm. like, um, that's, a, you know, is a serious problem. But I think in general, like, I think most scientists do take the kind of scientific method um, really seriously and and you know they want to disseminate correct information but also you know most of my articles are based on kind of articles that have been through uh or research that's been through peer review um they've mm. often been replicated you know um I, i'll try to gauge like other experts opinions on a different topic and you know really look at like a body of research so um so i would say like uh, you know, I, I try not to just take someone's word for it. Like, I really want to look at the evidence behind the kind of claims that they're making. And, and as a science journalist, that uh, that kind of evidence base is often very mm. apparent within the literature. Um, but you know, yeah, it is a problem. And sometimes in interviews, I can just kind of hear when I've asked a question, and you know, like often they're not meaning to be deceptive. But <laughs> yeah. I think I think I think it's like we all do. Like, you want to answer a question in a polite way, you want to kind of try to, um, you want to please the person you're speaking to. And I, I do try to be aware of that, that if if I can detect even like a hint of like hesitation in what they're saying, if I feel like maybe I've pushed them too far, then I would probably like not quote them on that particular mm. question because I just don't want, um, you know, and you can tell by how many details they give that kind of thing. Like, uh, you know, if it if it's more of a vague kind of agreement, then I would maybe discard that compared to if it was a detailed agreement where they're pointing to different pieces of evidence that would back up the point. So yeah, as a journalist, that is super important for me. Um, in terms of uh, kind of deception detection in general, there is some really interesting uh, psychological research coming out um, that looks at kind of how you essentially like we're really bad at telling deception mm -hmm. simply from body language but you can find that actually even gentle questioning that's really pushing people for details um and getting people to think about the kind of the the situation that they're talking about in a different way that might be just slightly harder to kind of recall so 
you know, mm -hmm. the police might ask someone not to just tell me what had happened in this particular event, but to tell it backwards. So from the yeah. most recent point to the uh, most distant point. And what they found is that actually, when you do that, um, it, it's a very light form of interrogation, but you just encourage people to, it, it kind of, if someone's lying, they're more likely to kind of, um, uh, uh, to kind of make errors in their story mm -hmm. and to contradict themselves. And, you know, from those contradictions, you can start to sense that maybe everything isn't as it seems. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, very well put. And, and it's, it's, it's interesting too. like, uh, you know, when we're talking about, you know, kind of uh, the consistencies in what they're, they're saying, and, and I agree with you. And, you know, uh, I'm, I'm pessimistic and cynical in some aspects, but very optimistic in others. And I don't think most people intentionally lie, right? Like, right. I'm sure, I'm sure you've done, you know, plenty of research into how our memories can be flawed and all that, mm. right. And I think there's this weird need for us to like uh uh to not only have like uh this confidence in what we believe but like just it's this idea of control like something i've been you know looking at is kind of the pseudoscience around uh body language reading right like i i i recently read a book and if and if you i don't know if you've read it yet but if not it's a great book uh it's called duped uh it's about truth default theory from this guy uh, timothy levine yeah, and and he he was interested in it when uh, he heard on on a radio interview these two like CIA agents wrote a book on how they mm -hmm. like catch people in their lies and read body language. Yeah. But he was sitting there. He's like, wait, but you guys like the CIA had this like spy in the organization for years <laughs> and nobody knew it. How did you, how did you not know that? But uh, yeah. but yeah, um, but something that's interesting is we we sometimes look at like nervousness as mm. this, or these weird little cues as someone's lying to us. But I'm somebody who has struggled with anxiety, you know, for mm. most of my life, you get me interrogated in a weird situation, I'm gonna look nervous, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, so, yeah. so there's this issue where we think people are lying when they're actually telling the truth, you know what I mean? Um, so so I, I, I wonder how many conflicts happen <laughs> be, because yeah. of that. Do you, do you try to, how do you balance your, uh, your, your skepticism with, you know, gullibility? Um, because like, like mm. the way you started off the, the book with that story of the, the very intelligent guy who got suckered into smuggling cocaine, like how do you, how do you uh, balance those two things? Yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, because I, I think, so you don't want to be so open-minded because um, we've spoken a lot about how open-mindedness is mm -hmm. important and, mm -hmm. you know, updating your beliefs in <laughs> with new information, but you don't want to be so open-minded your brain falls out. And, you know, I think that's <laughs> something you, you said earlier about kind of um, experts flip-flopping, but, you know, like you could be, you could have someone like claiming that they've got evidence of the paranormal, for instance. Mm. And if you kind of, if you say, well, scientifically there's, you know, we've done experiments and there isn't the good evidence that, you know, people can mm -hmm. um, uh, predict the future from uh, a crystal ball or whatever, then people will say, but, uh, but, but you're just being closed-minded because, you know, <laughs> right. you're like, uh, you value science too much or something. And, and, you know, that's not rational to me because we have to hold, uh, whatever claim is being made, we have to hold it to a certain standard of evidence. And I do think mm. the scientific method at the moment is the best way for us to be able to uh, discern what's wrong um, and what's right uh, in mm -hmm. that way. And to at least update uh, the theories so that they become more and more refined. Um, so yeah, you you want to be um, 
you want to be open-minded, but you also want to have high standards for the evidence that you're going to accept and even-handed in in that um, in those standards. So you have to hold the same standards for um, information, whether or not it agrees with your preconceptions. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem with things like motivated reasoning is that people don't hold the same standards. You know, they lower the standards for things that agree with them and higher the standards <laughs> for right. uh, things that disagree with them. You know, that's not rational. Um, I do think though there is uh, a danger of always being reflexively skeptical and believing that that kind of also paints you out to be um, or presents you as this kind of more intelligent person, like more intelligent than average. And I won't mm-hmm. name names, but there's this kind <laughs> of uh, figure, you know, a journalist, another science journalist, who I feel like he is reflexively skeptical in that kind of way. And, you know, actually, like, I don't think the the aim shouldn't be to just <laughs> to be debunking, like, literally everything, because sometimes you have to... the the best thing actually is to integrate contradictory evidence to come up with a more nuanced kind of theory. So, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you want to make sure that uh, essentially like, um, yeah, like you don't, it's no good to just say, oh, everything's bullshit. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you have to be like, well, you know, this experiment showed this, this experiment showed something slightly different. Could they be compatible in some form? Like, what are the kind of confounding factors? What's the context in each case? Mm-hmm. And then kind of come to kind of uh, synthesize that information. And that for me, I think is a better approach than just kind of um, kind of denouncing anything that <laughs> like, uh, you know, any for any claim, you could always say, oh, I don't believe that because you know, they're always lying to us, they're always exaggerating, whatever. Mm-hmm. But actually, you know, you don't want to use those kind of heuristics or rules of thumb either. You actually just want to look at the evidence and and to kind of piece it together like a jigsaw. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, and yeah, it, some, something that I, I personally try to do, um, you know, which I, I, I find it's kind of difficult to do, even for myself sometimes, is I try to look at like the most extreme view of something that I'm just like, I will disagree with it, you know, but I want to see, I want to see like uh, a good example. And, you know, you probably saw that, you know, the, the fire that went crazy in the Gulf, oh. uh, in the ocean. But uh, there's there's an author, Alex Epstein. Uh, he wrote a, uh, a book called The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. I'm like, okay, I'm like, I'll stay open-minded. Tell me why there's a moral case for fossil mm-hmm. fuels. And, and I read it and I tried to understand that, like going into there, it's extremely skeptical. And I felt I gave him a very fair chance. And I was like, this is absolutely ridiculous, right? <laughs> I was like, yeah. this, you know, this, I, I don't agree with it. Because I think I just personally, for those who haven't read the book, it, it gets into the kind of like this, like morality type thing. And I'm like, this is like even more utilitarian than I agree with. Um, yeah. But uh, but yeah, like I I want to ask you uh, this while I have you. Um, there's the recent news around like UFOs, right? Mm. And there's a lot of coverage. There's people doing debunking. There's uh, I see a lot of very intelligent people who I respect, right? Mm. Uh, and I, I recently had a famous skeptic uh, Michael Shermer on. Um, like, why do you, why do you think this is, it seems like when we take the evidence, it's, it's not there, but there are, you know, there, there's a lot of very intelligent people who are like, oh, you know, this could be, you know, aliens, or it could be, you know, this technology that leapfrogged ahead mm-hmm. of, you know, all of us, like what, how, how do you view this with a more rational eye? 
Mm. Uh, so I haven't been keeping up to date with this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think probably because <laughs> I maybe I'm unfairly prejudiced. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, I feel like the probability is very small. <laughs> so mm -hmm. um, I haven't been like super excited about it. Um, yeah. I, I think like, uh, so yeah, I, I mean, I, I, you know, I also haven't, yeah, like I, I don't want to judge any particular person's um, kind of, decision making there or the claims that they're making but I do think there's something that's important to remember here is that just because you can't rule out that it isn't aliens yeah. <laughs> doesn't mean that it is and I think that's something that is forgotten is that like um is that whole thing of like evidence of absence yeah. uh, a lack of evidence of absence doesn't mean you have evidence of presence you know and I think I think there might be a bit of confusion there about this in the, and I think as like uh, rational thinkers you know it's you have like a super surprising result and you you know like it raises possibilities um, but you have to accept that like if something is super unlikely like UFOs even with this new evidence it's still really unlikely it's just not impossible and so you have to like dedicate yourself to finding all of the other possible explanations for what's being viewed and like um and uh you know the to kind of explain the signals that we're receiving and so mm -hmm. I, I think that's really the, the the thing that needs to be done now is to like systematically just eliminate any other possible explanation before we start making kind of grand claims like that yeah, yeah, it, it's interesting, you know, we, earlier we were talking about intellectual humility, and I know in the book you talk about uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, like, you know, the guy who wrote the Sherlock Holmes books, and and you're just like, wow, this guy is just deductive, and the way he <laughs> thinks is amazing, and he got fooled by, you know, these fake fairies, and, uh, mm. and yeah, and there's stories about, you know, Houdini having to, you know, convince him that, you know, hey, these people aren't communicating with the dead, and all that, and I think, you know, I, I think it helps keep me humble when seeing intelligent people and just being like, okay, well, even in some scenarios, you might not be looking at this in the most rational way and looking at the probability, like when we're talking about, mm. you know, UFOs or, you know, fairies back in, <laughs> in those pictures. <laughs> but um, one, of, one of the last questions I wanted to ask you about uh, is the Dunning-Kruger effect, mm. right? Like, yeah. I, I feel like, you know, just for the average person, like uh, this, this seems like the one thing that a lot of people latch onto in arguments or with people that they disagree with, like, oh, this person, you know, it's the Dunning-Kruger effect. They think they're smarter than they actually are. Um, so, so, you know, uh, if you can give a brief explanation of the Dunning-Kruger effect, and do you think, do you think it's used more as a, or used too often as a tool just against people you don't agree with? Mm, yeah, so the Dunning-Kruger effect is um, this phenomenon where you see that uh, people who kind of lack knowledge in a certain field or lack skill often overestimate their abilities. Um, and you know, something that I, <coughs> so um, essentially like in my personal life, like I um, have been like learning uh, Italian for like 10 years and it's Ooh. like a super difficult language to learn <laughs> um, well I mean I just find language learning in Italian isn't especially mm -hmm. uh, difficult but you know to learn a language to fluency is like super difficult but what you know what I've noticed is that you know people it's also quite easy to know a tiny bit of the language and to have some small you know some quite big gains you know like being able to order food in a restaurant or mm -hmm. whatever and then people 
I think because of the Dunning-Kruger effect, they kind of overestimate how good they are and they think they're kind of near fluency. And then actually, like I found myself that the more you study a language, like the more years mm. you put into it, the more you realize just how much extra stuff there is to learn. And, you know, as you start having more like uh, detailed conversations, you, you start to see the kind of boundaries of your, your knowledge mm. and you realize that you lack the kind of subtle vocabulary so that even if you're making even if you're kind of expressing yourself reasonably well you're not being like super precise like you would in your um every you know in your uh, mother tongue and so I think that's quite a good example of the Dunning-Kruger effect whereas you can have the illusion of knowing um of being an expert just from knowing a tiny bit of knowledge mm, yeah yeah absolutely and and I think that's that's such a great example of you, you know, as you learn more about the language and, you know, test it out more. I, I think that's one of the reasons why I love to read so many books. And I'm, I'm very mm. thankful for my own personal curiosity, because the more I dive into one subject, it makes me start getting curious about another subject. And then I want to dive down that and learn more about that. And, you know, uh, it almost feels like the more that I know, the more I learn that I don't know, you know, <laughs> you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that that, that kind of helps, uh, you know, uh, keep keep me humble. Um, but but yeah, you you have been amazing, David. I appreciate it so much. And I I want you to let everybody know what, what you're working on. Uh, the Intelligence Trap came out, you know, a couple of years ago. Are you working on any upcoming books? Where can people find you and keep up with you with, uh, you know, your writing and projects and all that good stuff? Uh, sure. So um, uh, probably the best way to kind of um, keep up to date with what I'm writing at the moment, my journalism is um, through Twitter. So um, I'm mm -hmm. D underscore A underscore Robson. Um, also, my website is davidrobson.me, and I kind of update that semi-regularly. Um, at the moment, I've, I've just uh, kind of finished the edits for my next book, which is called The Expectation Effect, and that looks Ooh. at how our mindsets um, can kind of shape our reality in all kinds of ways. Um, mm. So, you know, from stuff like the placebo effect, but also then looking at the effects of our expectations in you know, dieting, exercise, even down to kind of how we age. I I am sold. I love that. I One of the topics <laughs> I dove you. into was the placebo effect for a long time. I was like, this is really interesting. Uh, when, when can we expect that to come out? Is that like a 2022 thing or yeah, what's the deadline? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's um, coming out 7th of uh, January in the UK and the 15th of February in the US. Beautiful. Awesome. So I will make sure to link all your social media and website down below so people can keep up to date with that. But yeah, David, thank you so, so much for coming on to talk about the intelligence trap and all that. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks. All right. How great was that episode? I enjoyed that conversation so, so, so much. And I hope you all did too. And I hope it, it gave you some tools and tips and things to look out for, whether it's our own intelligence traps that we fall into or the ones that, you know, other people in our lives are falling into and all that. So make sure you check out the description down below and follow David over on Twitter get a copy of this book, but yeah, make sure you stay tuned for his upcoming book. Like I, I am really, really, really interested in, you know, the placebo effect and how our minds can change, you know, what 
actually happens, you know, whether it's physiologically or just our, our perception and all sorts of stuff. It's really, really cool stuff. And David is an incredible writer. So I think this will be an awesome, amazing book. And hopefully he'll come back on once that book is coming out. All right, so make sure you're following David. Grab a copy of The uh, Intelligence Trap. And and make sure you're following me on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul. And if you're new and if you enjoyed the podcast, make sure that you're following it or subscribe to it, whether on Apple, on Spotify. And if you're listening on Apple, make sure you leave a rating and a review. That helps get the word out. The algorithm loves that stuff. But something else you could do, which is totally free, helps the podcast, is share this episode on social media or any of the episodes that you like. You know, we talk a lot about, you know, debunking conspiracies and becoming better thinkers as well as social issues. So I know you got some people who are on your Facebook friends list or something like that who would be interested in this. So make sure that you're sharing it out. All right. But there's also some links down below if you would like to support the podcast in any way. Uh, I have some books that I've personally written on mental health over at TheRewiredSoul.com. You can become a patron or there's an affiliate link down below for better help online therapy all right that is a service that i have personally used when i've been struggling with my mental health mental health is a huge huge part of my life so if you want some affordable online therapy from the comfort of your own home boom check out the affiliate link down below all right but again i hope you enjoyed that conversation with david huge thanks to him for taking some time out to come on and yeah we have some other really really cool episodes coming out this week so stay tuned and i will see you all in the next one